One of the things that I knew I was doing when I got into this is I was basically putting my head out on the chopping block because this is Star Trek The Next Generation. It is well beloved by many, many people, including me. It might actually be the most mainstream geek thing that I've done on my show, with the possible exception of handling the, the Star Wars movies that I've already done. And no matter what I do, I know that people are going to agree and disagree, and I'll probably get people who agree, or excuse me, who disagree in an agreeable fashion. And I've gotten to plenty of that. I've, I've actually got a whole bunch of people who are like, oh, I don't think this way, and here's why. Da, da, da. And it's been absolutely fascinating reading your guys' reactions and responses and otherwise comments and thoughts about the episode. So thank you for that. But I'm also opening myself up to people who disagree in a disagreeable fashion. You know, people who just call me lame or stupid or a geek or a dork, right? You're an idiot, right? I've gotten several of those too. However, there is probably no part of TNG where I am more opening myself to criticism except in this episode. Now, I could be wrong about that. I could be way off base. Um, I had a lot of people uh, disagree with me on uh, the previous Q episode, whose name I can't even remember right now. And I really wasn't expecting that one. So maybe I'm just wrong here. But I have heard this episode debated as recently as about four months ago. It's the last time I heard this debated in real life by the way, with actual fans of the show. This episode has been such a constant, divisive topic for Star Trek fans. And that's why I'm going to leave all the Tasha stuff to the end of the episode. Basically just not even covering or talking about Tasha till we get to the end of the episode, okay? So let's talk about the episode itself. First of all, the first scene with Tasha... In all seriousness, I did like the first scene with Tasha and Worf. Uh, Denise Crosby herself flat out said if she'd had more scenes like this to do throughout the course of the show thus far, then she probably would have actually had a greater inclination to sticking with the show. Again, I'll talk more about that later, but I did think it was a nice moment, especially since Dorne manages to play it completely straight-faced, and he's really good at that. He's good at the, no, I don't understand what you're talking about, kind of a thing, you know? Uh, he's almost a Spock-like character, as weird as that may sound. And, of course, I find it highly amusing that not only does she have the respect of a Klingon, which will be important in about two and a half seasons, but also that, in his mind, she was the automatic pick to win the martial arts tournament. Also, just as an aside, I kind of like the idea of a multiple martial arts tournament happening on, on a starship, just, just to entertain people. Something about that idea appeals to me. Like, you'd figure there'd be stuff where people sit and play card games or board games or video games or, you know, martial arts or maybe like a building contest or a painting contest, you know, just stuff to keep everyone entertained and keep that sort of community aspect going. I've referred to the Enterprise D, the Galaxy class, as a, an apartment complex more than once. And this kind of adds to that, assuming you lived in an apartment complex where you knew everyone else there and you were actually on decent terms with most of them. I, I just kind of like that community concept. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So, I have been called a nitpicker before, and Lord knows that I have nitpicked from time to time, but actually I don't really agree with that assessment in general. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on. I definitely overthink things, but nitpicking? Eh, not quite the same. But I was ready to nitpick the hell out of this because they engineer a situation in which there's a shuttle which is in basically spitting distance of a planet, 
and then it's going to collide with the planet, and the Enterprise happens to not have warp, and they're actually traveling at impulse to rendezvous with them. Now, realistically speaking, considering that they mentioned, I forget the exact time, but they mentioned it's going to be like an hour or two, you know, a couple hours before they rendezvous with them at impulse. So they're in system, in other words. They're within the Vagrant Star system, and they're going to meet Troy in her shuttle, which is over there. Um, actually, I suppose that's not necessarily true. The shuttle could have been traveling at warp. Hmm. Anyways, I was ready to nitpick the hell out of that scene, and then I saw how they constructed it, and how they moved forward with it, and I was surprised by how much thought was put into decisively creating this dilemma. The only hole, the only thing that isn't actually explained is, why does the shuttle be disabled? Like, what happens with that? Now... As a kid, I always presumed it was Armas who was actually directly doing that, who noticed the shuttle coming within spitting distance, practically orbit, of his planet, and was able to reach up to orbit, that's probably like the limit of how far out he can reach, and grabbed it and pulled it down. That is pure assumption on my part. Otherwise, that is one hell of a coincidence to happen to be in range of a planet and then happen to have a shuttle disable and then happen to have the shuttle fall into the gravity well of the planet. I mean, holy crap, right? <laughs> Anyways, moving on, moving on. One of the things I do like about the construction of the scene, though, is everyone involved treats it like a legitimate, urgent, emergency situation, which is so weird. It's so weird to see such, for lack of a better term, competency in Star Trek, especially in Season 1 TNG, you know. There's an emergency. What's the first thing he does as soon as he hears it? He calls down to engineering and says, Yeah, I need my warp drives. Uh, now? And they're like, uh, they're literally carrying the lithium crystals out. Uh, we need a little bit. And Picard says, all right, we've got an emergency situation. We need those crystals now. And the engineer doesn't say it's not happening or possible or anything. He just says, okay, <laughs> cutting every corner I can. And he does. And he just cuts corners and cuts corners. It, it wouldn't even surprise me if the Enterprise went to warp and then exploded. Um <laughs> But it's it's just nice to see how serious everyone took the situation and how everyone was willing to be like, all right. Now, um, the next thing I want to comment on is there's another weird aspect of competency. I know this sounds like a really minor thing to comment on, but one of the things that's always been a very small pet peeve of mine, in Star Trek in particular, is when people will talk about the emergency maneuvers they're doing. You know what I'm talking about, right? I am now initiating... Emergency Delta Pan Beta, you know. Now we know why they're doing it. They're doing it so that we, the audience, knows what they're doing. So that the act, because because actually showing that and showing what they're doing is going to be a little bit expensive. But in an emergency situation, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm the kind of person where an emergency, my my brain is a little bit too busy telling me what to do very, very quickly, basically bypassing usual channels, to summarize excessively, in order to get what needs to be done as quickly and as precisely as possible. Anything coming out of my mouth might, might just be something along the lines of at the time, right? I, and I should know. I've been in situations like that before in the car as well. Um, and I mentioned that because it, I just thought it was really nice that the pilot is busy trying to fix the shuttle, and so Troy's the one who gets on the comm is like, okay, here, he, the pilot's distracted, I'll try to narrate because I'm not the one actually at the controls, and I was just, there's, it's just a, such a small thing, but I was like, yes! And I kind of noticed that there's a lot of little small things in this episode. I usually don't think of this episode as a particularly good one. In fact, I, one of the things I do is I prep what I want to talk about before I watch the episode. Like, if there's anything I know I want to discuss, 
And one of the comments I made in my prep speech to myself was that this was a, you know, an inoffensive episode. Not particularly good, but not particularly bad. Going back through it with analysis mode has raised my opinion of it substantially because there's lots of little details that add to not just the flavor of the moment, but make me feel more the severity of it. And so the whole intro, the whole cold open is really good. Then we get down there and the engineer's like, all right, just completely ignoring the safeties, manually realigning, manually setting it up, skip the checklist, skip everything. Okay, we've got minimum warp. All right, warp eight. I said minimum warp. And I like to think that the engineer back down there, uh, the chief engineer, I think this is our fourth now, third or fourth, um, is just like constantly, like he's basically got his face glued to his screen, making micro readjustments to the array, to the lithium array, trying to make sure that the, the engine doesn't crack itself in half as they're going to warp eight. But another interesting thing. I, I love this idea because he doesn't have to do that for that long of a time, right? They just need to get to the shuttle, which was hours away at impulse. So seconds away at warp. This might be the only time in Star Trek, it's just off the top of my head, where they do a transition where we show the Enterprise at warp, and then they go back to the bridge and they're there. And I, like, I feel like no time has passed. Usually when they do that kind of transition, it's like, you know, it's been a few hours or it's been a few days. But in this case, I felt like it was in real time because they're going at warp 8 to someplace that was hours away at impulse. But that's the point. This isn't me nitpicking or, or complaining. That makes perfect sense. Picard wanted to respond to an emergency situation with regards to his crew in seconds. Which is exactly correct. Once they get there, yeah, sure, we can fiddle with the dilithium later, but we need to get there now. Right? And thus it's more believable that they could do this incredibly unsafe procedure of going to warp 8 because they're only doing it for a few seconds. You feel me? So I like the whole construction of this situation. Now, one of the things that I've heard many people complain about, and I brought this up as well, is that it tends to feel like the only competent members of the Enterprise-D are the main staff. What I mean by that is when they set up the away team, by the way, credit to all the actors, they all get across the severity of the situation pretty well. Apparently a lot of that was due to the fact that all of the actors knew what was happening with Crosby and knew that this was her, you know, her death episode. This isn't, this isn't the last episode they actually filmed with her, but they all knew this is her death episode, and apparently it hit the actors pretty hard. Again, I'll talk more about that later. But you really get a sensation of how serious everyone takes this. Uh, with probably the sole exception of Beverly Crusher, who overacts a little bit in her scene, but I'll get to that in a moment. They talk, you know, they get the away team going, and it's Data, well, actually, no, that's, sorry, let me say this correctly. It's Data and Yar and Riker. And then Picard is like, you can see him thinking, he's pensive, and then he, then he gets on the comm, Dr. Crusher, have you been monitoring? And Crusher says, on her own initiative, yep, and I'm coming too. Once again, it's just competency. You're sending your best security chief, who Worf picked as a sure win to win the martial arts tournament. You're picking Data, your super smart, super intelligent, super fast android. Riker, who hasn't really established his chops yet, but, you know, the guy who's in charge. By all accounts, we could probably say that Riker's a good leader, even at this point. And Dr. Crusher, medical support. All of that makes perfect sense, and I just found myself thinking, yes! Like, that's it's one of the few times where I look at an away team, and it just makes perfect sense that you're going with that. And then I caught myself and thought, well, hang on, hang on. Why are they sending the chief medical officer, the, 
you know, the chief of security, the first officer. Don't they have other people who are good at these jobs? No, I get it. I get it. Extras, you know, large cast. You want to keep things small, especially with the shoestring budget they were going with. So I'm willing to give this praise, but it did make me think a little bit how weird it is that basically all the away teams just kind of function as a uh, a little click. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not really sure what else to say about that, so I'm just going to move on from that point, because many other people have made far better uh, discussions of that in the future, so I'm just going to move on. So, at one point, they, you know, they start to move, and the Armus Slick moves with them, and then they move back, and the Armus Slick moves back with them. Now, I actually jotted down a note here that says, oh, they don't try jumping, good! Then Crusher recommends jumping. It's Riker who has to pull out and be like, no, 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 no. See, to me, that's an extremely logical thing, to not jump over this. Any kind of liquid slime that is capable enough of detecting you and moving to it to, to prevent your movement, that's something that is automatically some kind of a threat, right? So you don't want to just jump over it. I mean, Lord knows what's going to happen. Now, granted, I've played a lot of video games, and I know that can happen, but um, still, it, that, was, that was a decent amount of sense. Oh, and then Yard Eyes. At the 11 minute and 36 second mark, Tasha Yar dies. And then at the 14 minute and 50 second mark, we get back to the episode. Again, I'm not really going to cover that. They do some good medical stuff. Um, I mentioned that Crusher overacted earlier. It's actually more that she overacts in the scene after this, where she practically yells at Armis for doing this. Uh, or actually, no, it is before this, excuse me. But I want to give her credit where credit is due. The way she portrays the doctor trying to save her patient and the slowly increasing desperation of that, again, it brought me into the moment. I, I was weirdly immersed in this episode. It brought me into the moment. And it's even more so because if you pay attention to what they're doing, they're basically trying to get her brain to restart itself, to, to use very basic terms. And so they try something that's, you know, already unsafe. It doesn't work. So they up the dosage, and it doesn't work. And then they try it again, and it doesn't work. And then, like, in quiet desperation, she just says the number. I forget what the number is, but it's, like, way higher than the doses that she's already been doing. And you could just feel that this is already something immensely unsafe that they're doing. This is pure, raw desperation at this point. Just, come on. Come on, get up. Get up. And then, unlike every other time this happens to a named character in Star Trek, she doesn't get up. She stays dead. I'm going to, again, cover that more later. But after the 14-minute and 50-second mark, they finish their little meeting, and they get back to the episode. I want to give credit to Marina Sirtis in this episode. Um, it's not often that I get to praise her, unfortunately, uh, especially thus far. You know, I, I've basically been commenting on her magic powers and the, the bad acting that's been presented. This is the first time I've seen Marina Sirtis put in a good, a legitimately awesomely good performance. The way she gets across multiple feelings of pain, of emotion, uh, not emotion, that's the wrong term, of being emotionally unstable. Someone whose emotions are kind of raging a little bit and you can just feel how much she's trying to keep those under control. Like, eh. <sighs> and that sort of icy determination that comes across in her voice, and the way she just cuts through Armis's BS, like a, a, like a frickin' chainsaw through butter. She, she doesn't even... In fact, that's actually a bad analogy, because it's far more precise than that. It's like you get a little razor wire, and it just goes right through. 
Armas is like, oh, oh, I am evil. And then Troy says, no. She has this wonderful line, only what you tell me. And granted, he immediately says, I will tell you nothing. And yet you can already tell how much he has informed her because of his reaction and because of what she can feel off of him. She outplays him in every scene she's in. And it's actually kind of weird that Marina Sirtis does really an amazing acting job in a scene where, in real life, she's the only person in the room. She's talking to a guy speaking in a voiceover, you know. Still, major props. Then Worf has this great bit where, um, you know, they, they go down to the, the, the away mission and they pause and automatically turn back to Worf because Worf's not getting up. Nothing is said, by the way, because it's automatically assumed. We need security, right? Security, data, we need the analysis because Jordy's going down and we need the commander. They look at Worf and Worf says, uh, no. The goal here is not combat. The goal here is not to engage and defeat this creature. The goal is to get them back, and I can do that best from here. Love that line. We've already seen Worf start to actually be Worf. I've kind of commented on it as we go through. But that is Worf right there. Yeah, he wants to go out there. He just wants to beat the ever-living crap out of Armas with his bare hands. But his job right now, his duty his responsibility, and his internal honor, and I'll be using that phrase in the future, so remember it, his internal honor, his real honor, says, nope, I'm rescuing those people. That's my focus. It's that discipline that really appeals to me about Worf's character. Anyways. <clears throat> ah, so then we see a few more tidbits between Troy and Armas, and I'm sorry, I don't have much to add to them. It's just, it's just gold. But I love how she outmaneuvers him so perfectly verbally. Like, he says something, and then she immediately picks up on that and says, Oh, yeah, no, of course they're going to come back. We're part of a community. Uh, and, he, and so she then reacts. She, she sees how he reacts to the concept of a community and says, Ah, so they left you. And I just, she completely outmaneuvers him. I don't have much to add to that except for praise. But I do want to talk about Armis in particular now. Um, I also want to pause now to give credit to Ron Jones. Because Ron Jones did the score for this episode. <laughs> I've commented on this before. Every now and again I hear the music in one of these early TNG episodes and I think, that sounds a lot like Ron Jones. But I always check rather than just assume. It was actually Jones in this case. And he really adds to the tension and to the severity of every scene that he plays in. Um, plays the music in, I should say. I also want to comment on, before I really get into Armas proper, I want to comment on poor Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> he had to actually get into that goop. Like, that's actually Frakes covered in Metamucil and printer ink. And just... And apparently uh, it was an exceptionally unpleasant experience. And I imagine he spent a while in the shower after that. I also want to give huge props to the gentleman, and forgive me, I didn't actually write down his name, which is silly because I've got the thing up right here because i got to quote someone in a moment. Uh, the guy who was Armus in the pit. If you give me a minute, I'll probably be able to figure it out here. Uh, here we go. Matt McChesney. Mart McChesney, excuse me. He's done basically nothing, like, ever. Like, he's also an Ensigns of Command, and that's basically it. But he was the gentleman who was who was physically Armas. He was the one who was in the pit with the suit on. Now, I'm sure everyone's heard of this before, but it is kind of my job to, you know, to, to comment on, on these things as if you've never known this. So forgive me for diversing for a moment. But from a production standpoint, Armas was a nightmare. 
So they've got this Metamucil, and they've got this printer ink, and they just got this big old vat of it, and they've got like a little elevator thing down there to lower and raise them. And the guy has this suit, and it's this brilliantly built suit. It's got like coverings for the the heads, and it's got like s secondary layers and, and super strong mega glue going here and there to make sure that none of it seeps in, so that none of the crap actually gets on the actor, uh, Mr. Mart there, inside. Except... There was no real mechanism for him to breathe under there, so they would literally have to have a, t a stopwatch as they do as they shoot each of his scenes. If you ever notice, very few, like any time Armus, the guy in the suit, Armus, is ever physically on camera, it's only for a few seconds at a time, and that's why. It's because it's like oh. the guy was basically like, and then it's like, okay, 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 that's enough footage. That's enough footage. Get him out of there. Get him out of there so he can breathe. You know. Um, and of course, when they ever when they did the submerge and the remerge things, they had to be very careful about timing that because as soon as that was done, it's immediately get him out of there and try to get him safe. It's one of the reasons they were using sand as the terrain around there because it's easier to basically brush over the excess ink that was being poured out of the of the pit by just brushing sand over it. It was all actually rather impressive from a technical perspective, even though it was a nightmare for the actors involved. I think they did a pretty good job with it, my opinion. Especially given that this is a show that came out in the frickin' 80s. So, you know, late 80s, but still. I also uh, feel really, really bad for... Uh, uh, so, the props department, they made this suit for this guy, specifically so that he can, you know, be safe from the ink and the ooze while he's in there. Then, for reasons that have never been explained, the suit started breaking down and literally disintegrating, like overnight in between takes or, or as the hours pass. So they had to actually build multiple of these suits to put on this guy to get into this pit of goop, and they never figured out why it was doing that. It's Metamucil and printer ink. Like, nothing about that should be dissolving super glue. But it did. And they never figured out why. I, I think it was all actually a plot a person by Denise Crosby. She was, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I have no idea why. But it just speaks to the, to the, to the trials that people have to go through in making television sometimes. That being said, props. I think, I think it worked out pretty well, my opinion. Um, and I, I've seen this sketch work. I've seen what they wanted for Armist to be this big, horrible blob creature. Personally, I think the vaguely humanoid dripping ichor thing worked out better. Just my opinion. <sighs> now, before we talk about Armist proper, I want to talk about the Vagrans, or the Vagrans, or the Vargrans. Anyways, they're the ones that left him behind. Now, let me go ahead and just cut you off here, because to my knowledge... Please feel free to intervene, I guess. I guess I shouldn't cut you off. To my knowledge, we've never actually seen anything about them. Now, the actual encyclopedia, I actually looked this up, uh, the actual encyclopedia I've got mentioned that the Vagrans, Vagrans, Vagrans? I'm going to go with the Vagrans. That the Vagrans were the ones who left them behind. The Titans who, who purified themselves. But no word or mention of who or what those are. It was just like a tiny little entry in the encyclopedia. Um, and I only knew that because I looked up Armus first. So I'm not really 100% sure who these people were or what they were. You know, they are renowned for their beauty. We also don't know how long ago it was that they left. It could have literally just been a few years. And I know what you're thinking, oh, that's it? Well, I want you to picture being alone by yourself with absolutely nothing and no one to interact with for a few years. And then tell me how short a period of time that is. But one of the other things I've heard talked about in this episode extensively is who are the vagrants? You know, who are the ones who left? Um, the most common theory I hear is it's the Greek people. 
I, I don't actually remember if they have a proper species name, but the Greek deities from uh, who mourns for Adonis back in the original series, and that Apollo and Zeus and all the others were the people who left this planet and then went off to Earth and were like, ah, which would mean they were pretty old. This would be the millennia range at this point. But I'm not sure I really buy into that. I had my own theory for a long time, but the problem is Armas has the ability to literally project energy fields, not only to prevent them from beaming, but to also, like, readjust where people are. I mean, at one point, the Armas goes over the shuttle when Riker's inside him. There's no bulge anywhere, right? Like, this is a physics-defying creature, is what we're looking at here, which is fine. I'm not against that. But what I'm saying is, my knee-jerk reaction, and I'm curious what you think of this incredibly stupid theory, is that the changelings left him behind. The ones over in DS9? The ones that Odo is a species of? Now, the only thing that makes that not make sense to me is the fact that he has basically superpowers. Like, they can do a lot of stuff, sure, but they can't literally project energy. So I admit it's a flimsy theory. And in fact, it's not a theory I would even put as, as my actual headcanon. It's just when I look at Armus and when I look at the way he is, uh, it's the first thing that I think of. I think that this is the gook left over when they purified themselves however many years ago. Probably a really, really, really long time ago at this point. What do you guys think? As ever, I would love to hear your theories and thoughts on who the titans were of the vagrants that left behind Armus. All right, let's talk about Armus proper. I've been building up to it enough. Let me just go ahead and say that, as weird as this is going to sound, I swear I'm not evil, Armus was a great character, and he probably salvaged... Um, well, I shouldn't say salvaged. He was an excellent cornerstone of the episode. He was engaging, interesting. He was a very specific slice of villainy. At first, it looks like he's your typical I'm in power and toying with the victims thing, but that's actually not true. The episode makes it clear that's not actually what's going on. Troy makes that clear. Picard makes that clear. Armus himself makes that clear later. Armus, I wrote down the terminology here. It's two words that I think best describes Armus. He is empty rage. Now, I know the episode itself flats that up, but those two words, that is Armus. And I'm going to try to describe this because he toys with people. He kills people person. He kills person. And he, he messes with people and he lies to them and he and he said, well, no, I was just lying earlier. And he, he, Everything he does is all an attempt. He has a motivation and his motivation is to feel something. Amusement or enjoyment or laughter or fulfillment or something. Anything except for this empty rage that is just burning in the background. He is so angry all the time, and he just can't deal with it, and he can't manage with it, and there's just this, this fire that's constantly burning him inside and out, and he lashes out with it, but that doesn't make it feel any better. And he, so he lashes out again, and that doesn't make it any feel any better. So, okay, fine, maybe if I try this instead, or, or maybe if I get distract myself with this, or, God, at least just talk to me about this. And no matter what he does, that rage is never sated. At no point does his violent fury 
Actually, fury is the wrong word. I like to define fury as focused anger and rage as broad anger. So it, it is just pure rage. His, his rage just keeps going. At no point, at any point, does that violence ever feel satisfied. And it, you can almost feel the boredom. It's like, ah, oh, I kill you. No, don't help him or he dies. Uh, okay, here, fine. Like, like he, you can almost hear the frustration in his tone. Credit to the voice actor, by the way, who I don't have their, his name up right now. But credit to the voice actor because you can just hear that frustration, that, why isn't this working? Fine, here, have your stupid Riker back. Here is your people. Whatever. And that explains basically everything about Armas's character. He is someone who is desperate to feel anything else. And he fails at every turn. And it's fascinating to see his interactions with the others. Data... <laughs> in hindsight, Data was a perfect choice for this away mission, without intent. I'm sure that's why he was sent, because he is a brick wall to something like Armas. Armas like, yeah, and Data's like, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell him where it is. No, I don't think I will let uh, continue to help you hurt him. Fine, then take the stupid thing. Or how about when he's when he's forcing Data to to you know point the phaser at people? How will it make you feel to kill your own? Uh, nothing. I'm not actually the one doing the killing. You are, Armas. Oh, yeah? Well, what if I make you kill yourself? Uh, then that's that's still you. You're still the one doing it. Like, he's just a brick wall. You know what I mean? He's he's actually a literal buzzkill. Except there's no buzz here. It's just Armas is trying and failing miserably. And he just gets more and more upset until Picard comes down. And then Picard magically has found his freaking balls. I'm sorry for putting it so crassly, but one of the things that's been bothering me about most of season one is their uh, anemic approach to diplomacy. I've commented on it constantly, how they, they're constantly bending over backwards and licking people's boots as they're stepping on them, right? That's not diplomacy, as I've said many times. That's not negotiation. That's just being a doormat. It was nice to see Picard come down and pull some actual negotiation tactic against him. I'm not going to dissect it fully, but my favorite example is Picard comes down and Armas says, and Picard just looks at him, doesn't say anything. He makes Armas initiate. So then Armas says, well, aren't you going to ask me what I want? No. <laughs> And then they go back and forth for a bit. He manages to get Riker out, and then he pretty much insists that they are allowed to go, right? This is no longer between them. They're not involved. You may kill them, but I am the only one who can command them, and I will not command them to, to dance for your amusement. This is now between you and me. So Armas allows them to go, because, I mean, he's basically lost this phase in the negotiation. And then, this is my favorite part, Armas then starts saying, I want to leave. I want you to get me off this place. Now that's very important, because that right there is Armas breaking. Right at the beginning, Riker flat out said, you know, we are communicative people, we will negotiate, you know, what is it you want, I will be willing to work with you. You know, a, a fairly typical opening diplomacy maneuver. Trade, one of the most basic concepts of a social construct, right? 
Armus, of course, stonewalls that because he's, this isn't fun. Bored with it now. By the time Picard gets down there and has successfully managed to get the other ones beamed out because they are of no more purpose to Armus, Armus is practically pleading. He isn't prompted. He isn't questioned. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. Please, please negotiate with me. Please make this happen. I want to leave. Okay. I can make that happen. That's within my power. Can I talk to my people? No. No, you just need to make... Okay. Um, I'm afraid I really do need to talk to my people. Fine. Fine. And by that time, the desperation... I'm exaggerating a bit. The voice actor does go to do a good job. Of it. By that point, the desperation is palpable. He's like, fine, here. Talk to Troy. Whatever. And then Troy gives him that one last bit of info he needs. The one thing that we already know that Armus fears more than anything else. Being abandoned and alone. So Picard goes back and provokes him. And provokes him. And provokes him. And then just finally says, Yeah... I'm not taking you anywhere. And that final scene with Armas just howling in impotent rage. That's chilling. It was also nice to see, as weird as this may sound, it was nice to see some backbone behind the crew of the Enterprise-D. Now, to explain what I mean by that a little bit, Sometimes, and this will happen in the future as well, sometimes Star Trek gets, a, in my opinion, a little bit too um, lovey-dovey, hug-it-out kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Like, in some cases, yeah, I, I'm totally with the idea of reaching out and making peace with other people. I really am. But I feel like sometimes they push that a little bit too far in episodes. In this case, there's no third option. It's not even suggested. At no point is there a meeting room or a debate council where everyone says, how can we kind of, you know, how can we work with this creature and get our people back? No one ever even suggests that. He is the enemy, and he is treated as such. And I, I like that. Um, and actually, I guess that's really... Oh, no, I want to comment on one last thing. One last bit of competence before I move on to the Denise Crosby thing. They set up the computer to automatically transport them the moment basically X equal. you know, they, they, this is such a basic thing, really. They set up an if-then statement. If transport field below 2.63 or whatever the hell it is, transport up immediately. They just set that up. That's such an amazing feature that should have been used in many other episodes, especially in, in future shows, um, that it just makes perfect sense. Again, it's that competency thing on display. But now... If you're still watching me, it is time finally to talk about Denise Crosby and Tasha Yar. Let me just go ahead and say my opinion first, and if you don't like my opinion and find that insufficient reason to keep watching this or listening to this, that is up to you. I think killing her off here in this manner was a mistake. Okay? Just opening with that. Now, it's actually a really complicated situation. It's one of the reasons I haven't really wanted to talk about this. Let's go cover some facts really quickly. You remember how I mentioned that TNG Season 1 was on a shoestring budget and that that budget was being pulled back by, in, by the millions range? The amount of scrimping and scraving when it came to the budget on TNG Season 1 is legitimately ludicrous. It is astonishing that the, the episodes look as decent as they do, given that. Also remember, the working conditions were not good. 
They had those terrible smelling outfits, which just were rank. They had the uncomfortable itching problem. They had the unpleasant lighting problem. They had the fact that they didn't even provide proper catering or food for the actors, so they had to literally steal from other studios. I guess I shouldn't say literally steal. Literally take, whether it's stealing or not, is a little more debatable. From other studios or for other sets. This was not a pleasant work environment. And, again, as much as people love to bash TNG Season 1, and with good reason, it is astonishing how good TNG Season 1 is, given the working conditions these people were working under. Denise Crosby was 30 years old when this episode was being worked on, turning 31. She was about halfway through. I actually sat down and figured it out, because she was born in November, and this episode came out in July. Um... I hope I got those facts right, because I actually looked them up. But I did write down the number, which was the rule. She was 30, turning 31. Uh, how many of you in chat, right? how many of you watching this right now are younger than that? I'm just kind of curious. I just realized that I'm not streaming. I've been streaming a lot lately, forgive me, with the whole the lore runs we've been pushing out. So, kind of still in that mentality. My point is, that's not super young. And that's an actress who's really trying to push her career. You know, she's she's gotten to the point now where she can't just accept background roles if she really has the drive to become a decent actress. And she did. By all accounts, Crosby really wanted to go somewhere with her acting career. And Tasha Yar, the character, hadn't gone anywhere as a character. I have been... One of the reasons I've been pointing out Tasha scenes throughout TNG Season 1 is to kind of show how rare the actual good ones are and how much of a non-entity she was. Now, the same could be said of several of the other actors, and their own reasons for staying are their own. Unfortunately, we'll never really know the specifics, uh, because nobody was really asked about it. But Crosby said, this is enough. Crosby actually uh, didn't just quit, though. She went to several of the brass, including Rodbury himself, and was like, I want more. I want more scenes. I want more significance. I want my character to matter. And the thing that she was told, and this has been phrased and rephrased over time, so I'm not sure of the 100% validity of it, but the general gist of what she was told was, this is a show about Picard, Riker, and Data. Everyone else is an ancillary character. And she didn't want to be an ancillary character. And I don't blame her. So from her perspective, at the time, bowing out was the right move. And I don't blame Crosby for that at all. Now, we speculative fiction fans like to think about a lot of scenarios, but one of the most common ones is, what if? I postulate one right now. What if Denise Crosby had stayed? How different would Star Trek have been if, if we kept having Tasha Yar? If as TNG grew and, and, grow, and, and found its own strength and became a much better series and, and had much better writing as the show progressed, wouldn't it be interesting to see what they would have done with Tasha over the years and how much that would have changed the dynamic between characters to have a complete a new character in there? Because they never really replaced Tasha. Uh, amongst the main characters, Tasha leaving basically left a hole that was never filled. Everyone else just kind of bunched up together closer. So what other story arcs or lines or plots would have happened by that? It's actually one of those things that's almost too wild to speculate on. It's interesting to think about, though, isn't it? Now, that's all I really have to say about the out-of-character perspective. Her leaving made a lot of sense. She tried to get you know, more of what she wanted first. She tried to negotiate first, and, and between the working conditions and her career drive, she finally just said, I'm out. Um, 
to give you a little bit of perspective, I'm sorry, one, I'm sorry, one, one thing I wanted to mention really quick as well. Think about Michael Dorn's character. Think about Worf. He has had, I, this is just off the top of my head, but I believe he's had two significant scenes in the entire series so far. Two scenes of real meat on them that are really Worf scenes, right? One of them is in this episode, so I guess you could say he's had one, if we're counting before this episode came out. Um, how many really meaty scenes has Crusher had, right? How many really meaty scenes has Geordi had? And so forth. My point is, given how much all of these characters not only became beloved, but became part of the Star Trek mythos, it then becomes very obvious and easy to understand why Denise Crosby became so connected to Star Trek Online. Because for the first time, Denise Crosby was playing a major character in a Star Trek franchise. And and apparently, by all accounts, she wanted that. She was the one who actually suggested that Sela come back later on. And many people were like, yeah, we need to bring Tasha back. I'll, I'll talk about yesterday's Enterprise when we get there. Let's, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Point being, you can tell the desire was there. Which brings me to the narrative side of things. So we've talked about Denise Crosby. Let's talk about Tasha Yar. <sighs> Let's cover the big argue, argued point, first off. And the big argued point, the point I've heard yelled back and forth about for, for years and years, since I was a kid, is the sticking point is that she died pointlessly and for no reason, and that's the point, or that that was crap. Like, everyone tends to agree, her death was just... And then the episode moves on. Barely acknowledges her death, really. And then we have the coda. I gotta say, by the way, actually, really quick, the the her send off scene was actually really touching. Um, by basically every account, I think we could say with high certainty that this is true. Most of the actors had actually grown pretty close to each other over the you know the year they've been they've working together on this, and um, and a lot of the the emotion and the tears there were legitimate, especially on behalf of Marina Sirtis. Um And obviously, everyone knows about the connection and the, those two's friendship and how they were working out. <laughs> Funny, since, you know, they were originally supposed to play each other's characters. I I found myself legitimately touched by that scene. So credit where credit is due on that part. And I have to admit, I think a lot of that rests on Ron Jones. His little piano piece was perfect for that. But I'm digressing. Tasha Yar died a quick, pointless death. <sighs> ah. And the argument I most often hear is, well, space is dangerous. That is a valid argument. Let me go ahead and start by saying that. But execution matters as well, in my opinion. There's a difference between... Wow, I'm actually not going to be able to give examples of this. I just realized because I don't want to spoil other works. There are other works of fiction. I'm sure some of you can think of some. Uh, where a major character has died just out of nowhere, out of the blue, and that's part, that's the point. And they did something with that. They, they used that as a strength of storytelling. And that not only just affected the audience, but affected the characters and impacted the story. So I'm not opposed to violating narrative law to do that kind of that that kind of interruption, that kind of shock value death. What I am against is doing it and then having it basically not matter. Let's be clear. This is an episode in which, oh yeah, Tasha died, not the episode about Tasha's death. In fact, I have a quote here from someone who is unrelated to this, but he's a writer who does some Star Trek novels. And I've pulled up the exact quote. You just got to give me a second. Here it is. This quote right here, he was speaking in how awesome this scene is. And yet in his discussion, he explains the problem to it, which, I'll, which is what I'm building up to here. And I quote, 
Klingon feelings notwithstanding, there's no such thing as a good death, and Yar going out in a blaze of glory isn't inherently any better than being casually snuffed out by a sadistic oil slick. In fact, Yar's death is in keeping with the deaths of security people throughout Trek history. The only difference is that this one is listed in the opening credits. And that, that right there, makes all of my point for me. She died like a red shirt. There's a reason the red shirt thing is a thing. But it's also a piece of crap storytelling. If I could just say that as bluntly as I possibly can, it is literally cheap storytelling to employ the red shirt mentality. On the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, the red shirt mentality is we need someone to die so that the audience knows the situation is serious. And that is an acceptable mentality if done correctly or sporadically. But Trek does neither. There's a reason it's literally considered a cliché to have the red shirt die. It's become a joke in modern era because of how common it was. And that's the problem. From a purely writing, creative, narrative perspective, if you just bring down someone to die to show the situation serious, that doesn't mean anything. You, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the relative equivalent of them just holding up a sign saying, hey, situation's serious, okay? There's no oomph, there's no power, and it doesn't mean anything for the story. And that is the point. Killing off Yar here, many, 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 many fans for the years have given alternate deaths that they could have done to graft onto this, to make her death mean something, to have it be significant or or powerful and important. And I have to admit, that is probably what I would do as well as a writer. I tend to lean more towards what I call narrative law which isn't actually law, but it's, 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 the, it's the basic precepts and concepts of narrative structure that most stories follow. This whole shock value insta-death is in violation of narrative law, which is fine if you do something with it, if you do something good with it, if you make it matter or significant to either the characters or the, or the, or the plot or, the, or something. But this has, Yar's death is literally just a red shirt death. The only way it has any significance at all all is in the coda at the end where they have her funeral scene and the fact that she was a main character rather than a red shirt. That's it. That's my problem with it. So while there's a lot of ways you could have rewritten these scenes to make Yar's death significant or powerful or, or maybe, oh God, she has to do this great deed or maybe she might be replaced by someone else. I've heard so many different scenarios and I, I don't mind hearing yours too if you want to come up with one too. I've, I've been hearing a lot of awesome ideas and rewrites and comments in, in the comments section. So please feel free to share. But you could still do the sudden death thing. It just has to mean something. And I have to admit, I'm not 100% sure how I would make this mean anything. Because given the structure of the episode, it literally is kill to prove that I'm serious. The only way Yar's death matters at all for the actual episode, not counting the coda, is that it proves to Armis that killing is boring. And that's it. And... That's not really, I think, enough to justify, from a narrative and creative perspective, killing off a main character. So maybe examine that concept more. Maybe go more into how death is something that Armis doesn't even fully understand, as, as, as Troy explains the loss of that, because maybe the Titans or the Vagrants or whatever didn't, had gotten to the point where death was a non-issue, and Armis himself doesn't even understand death. 
maybe make Yar's death a recurring theme as they discuss things with Armas, as they slowly chip away at his own desperation and his fear, right? Because it is death, like maybe maybe he even have a line about, oh, I envy her. She can stop. I can't. I don't get that choice. I don't get that freedom. I just get to sit here. You know? Make it part, weave it into the story. And therefore, Yar's sudden shocking death actually has some relevance outside of the fact that, hey, the situation's serious. Now, I also have to admit, one thing I would have probably done personally, and this is just my own narrative style, I know the 80s were different, just giving my opinion, I would have had Yar's death matter in the, in the subsequent few episodes. We've already seen an, a, a surprisingly large amount of continuity in Season 1 TNG. I've been pointing it out as we go. It's always background stuff, what I usually like to call setting continuity. But, you know, characters moving around, or we need these upgrades, and then we're delayed, and then we go get the upgrades. You know, little stuff like that. Have Yar's death continue to matter in future episodes. Have her absence be mentioned. Just a little thing, like maybe, for example, in a future episode, Worf automatically goes over to his ta- you know, to the science station in the back, hesitates for a moment. And he gets this look on his face, and then he turns around and he readjusts himself at tactical. And he looks visibly uncomfortable. No need for dialogue, no need for the camera to focus on it. Just have that in the background to kind of showcase how Yar's death mattered is still affecting these people. Now, in the future, they will address Yar's death and actually make it more significant. And that is true. It'll, in fact, her death will basically become a major part of Data's character arc in the future. But again, I feel like it would have been nice if they acknowledged and, and, and did something with that now, here in Season 1 TNG. I suppose that's actually all I have to say about this episode. I was surprised how much I liked it, overall. Even though I, I have problems with the base core issue you know, of Yar's death, it was good. And we're actually going to be seeing a string of reasonably good episodes from now until basically the end of Season 1. Unless I'm forgetting any, which is entirely possible, because it's been a while since I've watched TNG Season 1. So it'll be interesting to see where we go next. But regardless, I will be seeing you next week. <laughs>